What's up, fam, and happy Wednesday. I hope that you are all doing exceptionally well this week. I am so excited because this week we are starting a two-part series with the owner, Sonia, of Everbloom. Everbloom is a really awesome way to connect with the sober community, and it's also a really great way for those who are exploring sobriety. What does that mean, exploring sobriety? Right now we are in the crux of a huge part of a kind of social movement that discusses California sober or, you know, sober curiosity you know, so there's other things that we have to talk about. And while Sonia herself has been sober for over six years, she has created a program, a life coaching program, that talks about what has been her experience, strength, and hope, and her journey that has led her to help other people. This is a phenomenal episode. I learned a lot about not only myself as an alcoholic, but the state of the world that we are in now and how people approach sobriety. Also, Sonia has an ethnic background that we discuss as an Indian female. She brings so much light and positivity to this absolutely horrible disease, but she wants people to have help no matter where they're at in their sobriety, no matter what they are looking into, as part of it being a full life commitment, or are you just using it as a way to cope with your stress? So we are going to talk to Sonia over the next two weeks about her story and then her program and how she came to develop it. I really, really can't wait for you to hear her experience, strength, and hope. So here we go. Hi, and welcome to A Sober Girls Podcast. My name is Sherry, and I am your host. Every Wednesday, we get together and we talk about our journey in sobriety, what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. I've been sober for over 10 years now, and I realized that one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was just putting the plug in the jug and not drinking. I never took care of my emotional sobriety, did my step work, or was fully involved in the program until it was almost too late. This is my story, my experience, strength, and hope and what life is like for me on a daily basis as a recovering alcoholic and addict. I am so glad that you are with me and now let's get into it. Awesome okay so first of all tell me a little bit about you where where you're at where you come from Go ahead and get started. Just like where I'm at. Um, right yeah. now, I am in Toronto, maybe sitting my eight-year-old niece. And I have a 19 and 17-year-old niece who were here for the weekend. Um, oh, and otherwise, yeah, which I mean, teenagers are something else. Yeah. Especially when they think, they're their, <laughs> they, think, they think I'm their like cool aunt. And so it's like too much information, like all the time. It's just <laughs> way too much information like don't tell me that I don't know where to put it I don't know I can't tell it like it's just nonsense like the stuff they tell me and so yeah so that's what's been going on otherwise I'm in rural Pennsylvania okay awesome and how long have you um been sober 
I've been sober for six years and I have like a note on my calendar for when it's 2,222 days. And I think that's in the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's really, what made you want to do that? Um, what made me want to do that is that my um, ex-husband broke up with me like five days after my last soberversary. And I remember thinking in the days right before, like, it's so weird, like he's not into my five-year like soberversary. And so I was like really excited about five years. And then literally like a few days later, he was like, I think I'm going to leave. And so it kind of like, I don't know, it kind of like messed up the soberversary for me a little bit. But then when I had the next one and it was six and that was like, you know, a little while ago, I was like, okay, I like it. But just in case I have some other, other numbers I can celebrate. I love that. Isn't that interesting how important those soberversaries are to us and how we want them to be kind of like, they're like birthdays, right? Yes. And it's like a milestone of like since last year. And then now this, and so this year is the hardest, hardest by far year of my sobriety. This was the absolute hardest getting divorced was something I never, well, I never even considered. And like, I think I, I haven't had something this big happen since I got sober. I had had a pretty, I didn't have like an easy five years, but definitely nothing this like life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So tell me a little bit about your story. What, um, where you started with, you know, your drinking or your using, you know, what's kind of your experience, strength and hope with addiction? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up, I was a really anxious little Indian kid in a white area. And, um, just, I mean, I think there's a combination of like, I was predisposed to being really anxious. And then I think that situation of just being so different and then throw in like a lot of chaos in my house, I think was just like a recipe for, you know, pretty severe anxiety. Um, and so I felt like that. I really can't remember a time I didn't feel like that. So from the day I first went to school when I was like five years old, up until my first drink, when I was 15, I was, you know, just anxious, like physically anxious, like a lot, like in every way, like it was all sorts of anxiety and all of it was fixed with alcohol for a little bit. And so I drank, I started smoking cigarettes when I was like 13 and then drinking when I was 15. And, um, yeah, it just felt like, right. Right. It just felt like, this is it. This is, this takes away all of those feelings. And so, yeah, I, I did that and I binge drank for probably another decade and a half and then, um, and pretty severe binge drinking, like, to the you point know, of blackout, that, like when you would do oh, it, you would go like, right. Blackout is like that blackouts every day. Yeah. Like blackout <laughs> was like a normal, like that was a normal occurrence, but like getting my stomach pumped, like oh falling my God, in, Sonia. Yeah. Breaking my nose, like losing my wallet, losing my keys, losing my boyfriend. Like, yeah, just like disaster. But I thought like everyone drinks like that in their teens and twenties and like through college. And then Um, I, you know, was in school for a really long time. And so everything just looked really good from the outside. Like I was super successful. I was doing well in school. I looked pretty good from the outside. Um, yeah, it just didn't, it didn't occur to anyone and even me that there was a problem because everything looked so good. And so high functioning. 
oh, I'm like the, yeah, the definition of high functioning. And so, and I think it was important to me to be high functioning. So it wasn't just natural. It was like, I was trying hard to be high functioning. And so um, when I started my first business, that's when I started drinking every night, like when I would get home and, you know, it was a combination of like, oh, it's really sophisticated. I'm drinking wine. Like it can't be a problem. Um, but I was drinking almost like I was blacking out a few times a week and I was still going to work the next day at 7am and working 12, 14, 16 hour days, just feeling like garbage. And I just, it's just funny. I just read this and they're like a high functioning alcoholic. It's like, you know, when you say like Fred Astaire, like and Ginger Rogers and Ginger Rogers did everything he did except for backwards and heels. Yes. And that's what being a high functioning alcoholic is. If you're Absolutely. like, I was truly functioning. Like I get a lot of comments on social media, like you weren't really functioning. And it's like, no, I was, I built a business. I scaled a business. I sold yes. a business. I got married. I bought a house. I bought, like, I had two dogs, like they're alive. Like it, you know what I yeah. mean? Like I didn't have, I had no severe medical conditions. Like I, you know, I was functioning for all intents and purposes. And so, and that actually, like, I remember responding to someone on social media who said that, like, there's no such thing as high functioning. And it's like, call it whatever you want, like call right. it whatever you want. But there are other founders and CEOs of companies that have a substance abuse problem. So if you consider it high or not, but that's part of the reason I stayed sick for so long. Because you could do it. Because I could do it. And because to come out and say, I have a problem had a lot of consequences, right? Like I have 50 employees. I have people who count on me. I can't go to an AA meeting and people find out that, you know, in my area or like people that I see at work, like know that I'm, you know, have a drinking problem. And I think that's what keeps us sick. And so it's really important to me to be like really honest with the level of functioning. That's and insane because that's, that's some like, Dr. Bob, alcoholism, you were in such an encased area that your anonymity was so important. That's something we don't talk about anymore. Like CEOs, business owners, people in high capacity positions, you know, now alcoholism is talked about so often that we don't think that anonymity really needs to matter truly in the workplace because alcoholism is just something we deal with but for you you knew that if you got help or if you told people you had a problem there were going to be consequences and what an odd 1930s 40s way of thinking but wow really so was there a lot of pressure for you to not only maintain your position at work but also be able to figure out how to solve problems without anybody knowing in your life period. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I couldn't compromise that part of my life. And I think um, I was also, I was an orthodontist. And so I had a large orthodontic <gasps> practice. And so I was seeing patients and I was always sober when I was seeing patients and I was very confident, but I and that's something I find a lot with healthcare providers is there's a huge stigma because if you say I have a problem, people, you know, if your patient finds out they're going to be like, oh, this is like a liability. Like this person was, you know, were they on drugs when they were operating or were they this? And so there were such huge stakes to me 
um, especially having a large practice where you're seeing so many patients. And I had other orthodontists that worked for me. And so there was just the stakes felt too high. Like in retrospect, I think that because I knew I wasn't doing anything to compromise the patients, like I should have gotten help earlier, but I think that there is just such a stigma, right? That you are, that there's a stigma of alcoholism, that you are somehow like not capable of doing certain things. And so, yes. yeah, and no, medical I was, is one of them. Yeah. And I was, I was working great, but like, was everything great? No, like for sure. Other things <laughs> suffered, but high functioning, I think is when you keep that part of your life just intact, yeah. right? Like you stop drinking at 11 because you know, you have to get up. Like you, you are really functioning around it. And so, yeah. And yeah, for sure. It felt like I was just, everything was so much harder for me, like, you know, getting to work and like just everything. Right. Like, and by the end, even like eating properly was hard for me. Like it was just exercising is hard. Like it just, everything felt like such a like struggle, like just such a slog. Yeah. How did it affect your, did you notice a difference? This is just so interesting to me because you're the first like female professional medical, anything, you know, high, this is really interesting to me because you were high functioning at work. So how were you at home with your husband, um, during the downtimes? Yeah. So, um, you know, my husband smoked weed all the time. Like once we got home, he was smoking weed. And so I think that had that not been the case, um, maybe he would have noticed, but he truly never said anything. Knowing I even came from like a pretty significant, like alcoholic background. My brother's an alcoholic. My uncles are alcoholics. My grandfathers were alcoholics. And, um, he really, and he was also, he's not the kind of person to really, he was like a tough love guy. Right. So he was kind of like, if you have a problem, just stop kind of thing. So he wasn't the person you would go to and say, I think I'm having this issue. Cause it would be like, well then fix it. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you're not going to get what you want there. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, I mean, the marriage was actually better when I was drinking because I think that's the person he met. Like when I was 23, 24, I was like life of the party and, you know, I was more social and I was just like, always wanted to have fun. And so I think in, in a sense, it kind of worked in his favor, right? Like, yeah, there was like blackouts and he'd be like, oh, you don't remember what happened last night, but they would kind of like would jump over that pretty quickly and be like, oh, anyways, let's go get brunch, you know? And um, <laughs> yeah. And even when I quit, it just was like a very, like, it seemed like, okay, you're just like changing a habit. This isn't like a journey of self-discovery. This isn't anything that's going to ruin us or make you rethink anything or yeah, you're just going to stop because you decided to stop. Right. And then I'm sure it's the same for you. It's like, okay, once you get over the physical, like physically not drinking, then you're in a position to like check out emotional sobriety. Right. And not until then. And so once I was just comfortable, like going out and once I was just, you know, then it started to really occur to me, okay, we got to figure out like what was really going on. Um, like what is, you know, what are the problems? Like, who are you? Like I had been drinking since I was 15 I was like, you know, 37, 38. And it was like, I had no hobbies. I had sort of not had a close relationship with, I had, you know, young nieces and 
who wants to hang out with young kids when you're drinking, right? So I didn't have a close relationship with them. Um, And there were just so, I just didn't even know who I was. Like, what do I like to do at night? Like, (laughs) yeah, like I, I never drive anywhere after six o'clock. I never, you know, and all of a sudden all these things like opened up and it was like, let me try doing all these things that I could never do for one reason or another, either the drinking or working all the time. And so I really did start to change, um, like fundamentally, I think how I, like my value system started to change, like the things I cared about and like, um, you know, just wanting to be of service to other people going through the same thing, wanting to be a service in general, like feeling so lucky that I had gotten to this point. And so, yeah, I mean, it just cha- look like, look at what you're doing, right? Like, this is a huge part of your identity. It was, became a huge part oh, of my identity. Huge. Yeah. And so I wanted to like yell at from the rooftops, like I'm sober. Like I really embraced it. I wasn't embarrassed and, and he was. And so, oh. you know, that, and I started writing about my sobriety and, um, that's just not something he wanted to be part of. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. So he liked you when you were high functioning and the life of the party and kind of in a weird way, boring. You were, yeah. you were very routine. You were comfortable. I was also really into like money, right. Making my yep. business successful into getting a nice house into like just the way things looked a lot more. And then when I got sober, all of those things just didn't matter. Like, and it was harder, I think. Yeah. And it was harder to kind of, in a sense, control me. Like in, I'm not saying he was controlled. I'm saying like, like, it's like, well, I don't want to work at this high of a level anymore. And he had to accept it. He couldn't just say, no, come on, let's go. And it was like, no, no, I'm not that person. I'm not just going to do it. It's not healthy. Right. And I'd never had any boundaries about work or anything or like growing the business or anything. I had no boundaries. And so I think that, that sometimes when you do start to set those boundaries, not even knowing you're doing it, just saying like, no, 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 I can't do that. Like that compromises my sobriety. Um, It really, it does affect the other person so much. Like, and I do, I, I think like in his defense, I am not the same person. Right. And and do I think I'm a much better version for sure? And do I think he's an asshole? Sorry, can I swear? Yeah, go <laughs> like, for it. <laughs> yeah, like, do I, I think he's an asshole for, for leaving for sure. But in his defense, if this isn't the type of life he wanted and it's not what he signed up for, then what can I do? Right. No, and that, I get that because I also am a product of divorce through um, sobriety. Uh, I was actually, um, I was a horrible person and a horrible drunk to be completely honest. I, I was in an abusive marriage. Um, and so once he accused me of doing certain things, I was going to make sure that if you at least accuse me of doing them, I'm going to do them. (laughs) So it gave him that right, that write air quotes to kind of treat me even worse. So then when I sobered up and started setting boundaries, you know, that, well, 
just remember who you still are. Remember what you did. Remember A, B, C, and D. And it's like, okay, that's not who I am though. And I know you love the broken version of me because that was safe for you and you could save me, but I'm not broken anymore. I know who I am. I remember who I am and I'm going to, and I'm going to live this way, you know, and he would brag about my sobriety when it was convenient for him, but otherwise he would literally intentionally sit at home and drink in front of me. Just That's to, unbelievable. Just to, not, and he wasn't a drinker, you know, it wasn't like your husband where he had smoked weed. So it was just kind of part of the thing. He yeah. intentionally would sit there and drink in front of me and be like, Oh, this is so good. Do you want some? Like, oh my God. Like, and I still say, yeah. Did it slowly happen where these things started to like, you know, eat at you and you were like, this is, I can't live like this if I'm going to stay sober. Or was it like an incident? I think once I realized, once I sobered up, probably in year two of sobriety, I realized that he was being abusive. And then by year three, I realized that he had been insanely abusive and um it got worse the more independent I got the worse he got um to the point where I ended up leaving with the you know my shirt on my back you know and leaving to another place to go live without him knowing um just because there's no there was no way for me to leave him and so yeah to for me setting boundaries looked like I was still doing things wrong. (laughs) You know, so I've learned now that boundaries aren't wrong. Boundaries are right. And you don't have to like the boundaries, but they're there. Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting. It's hard now because I do talk to people who are trying to get sober or getting sober. And it's like, I struggle with like the narrative. My husband left because I got sober or my relationship failed because yes. I got sober and it's How weird is that you don't want to tell people who are getting sober like hey some people your relationships are going to get way better but some people they're going to get way worse because you can't tolerate that behavior and so even though for me I did set boundaries I still very much wanted to be married it was his decision to end the marriage like I would have done anything to um, fix it and now I realize there was so much more going on than I had initially thought. And that not that my sobriety made me passive, but it made me very like able to kind of roll like with, like, if he would say something that would be critical, I'm not going to pick a fight. I would say, Oh, that's not true. Come on. Right. Like I, it made me a lot less angry if it makes sense. And so I was a lot like, I was probably putting up with things more. Um, maybe some for some people, it's the opposite. They put up with more when they're drinking. But I put up with a lot more once I got sober because I just was like, wanted this peaceful life, right? I just wanted after oh, decades of chaos. Yeah. Like just like laying there and watching Netflix and like eating ice cream was like, yes. honestly, right? And not being like sick and not waking up with the ice cream down my front and like, you know, just being like, at peace was so important that I was sort of willing to ignore or put up with certain like criticisms that I would, I, yeah, probably when I was drinking, I would have maybe picked a fight over. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's interesting what we, 
what we do for peace. It's interesting what we do to, like you said, graduate from that chaos and just allow ourselves to enjoy things and enjoy the moment. And it's really hard when people in your life don't either support that or don't understand that. Um, I do actually have a question for you. And this is something I've wondered for a really long time. <clears throat> you, you're an Indian female. Um, people can't see you because you're on camera and yeah. this is a podcast. Um, culturally, let's talk about being an alcoholic in um, the Indian culture, because obviously as an American white female, I um, have never been exposed to other cultures, alcoholism. Um, I I think one time I saw a Native American man in my meetings. Um, but let's talk about the pressures of, are there any pressures of being an Indian female with alcoholism? You know, culturally, how is it different for you as an Indian female here as potentially back in the country of India itself? So let's talk a little bit about yeah. that. So that's something I've been so into lately because I've noticed like, why don't I, why are all my clients white middle-aged women right, from like the <laughs> suburbs? Because we're and, fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Like they're all sort of like, I would never say like an archetype, but it's all like within a certain boundary, right? A certain yeah. age group, a certain like demographic, a certain socioeconomic, which is not necessarily what I expected. And so because of how I look, I thought, oh, maybe there'll be other people that are like, you know, of color that'll be attracted to like me as like a coach or whatever. And, you know, but Indian, so in Indian society, like mental illness and addiction don't exist, right? Ah, okay. They just don't exist. And on top of that, women don't drink period. And so the, the combination of being like, I'm a, an addict and a woman was like, just totally unheard of and, and just not accepted. Right. It's just like, no, you don't have a problem. I don't, it's not a problem. And so I think that, yeah, there's just so much pressure on not having like this, any sort of stigmatized issues, because then you're not like, it, it reflects on the family, right? And then you're not marriageable, or you're not this. And so it's, it's like, it's all a reflection on the family. It's not about what you're going through. And so I was saying to my nieces, I was like, we're so lucky we weren't born in India in the sense that like, I, I had just seen a movie at South by Southwest about trans women in India. And, and, you know, I thought oh, like there, there's zero acceptance, right? Zero, like, no, and it's like, thank God we weren't born there with any sort of stigmatizing issue. Um, and then it's like, what would I have been like in India? So I wouldn't have been drinking, but I would still have that anxiety, right? So, and it would right. have been unmedicated. And so if that mental health issue was still gonna exist, I'm glad I'm here, right? Okay. And I can get help for it um, because there it would just go undiagnosed, right? Like all of it. And wow. so I just think, I don't know. I feel, I feel super lucky to be here. I feel super lucky my nieces were born here. I feel like- I, yeah, I mean, I like now I'm really, you know, I'm, I try to like, I'm like, we need to like change things there. Like we really should do something about like the plight of trans women in India. And like, I'm always just like, we need to do something because what, what if it was us? What if it was us? And so, yeah, it's unfortunate. I wish I had more Indian clients and I wish, and it's sort of my thing now is to kind of like reach out to different like Asian communities and say like, look, if there's a problem, we need to talk about it. And so yeah, I'm just not, there's not a lot of movement, not a ton of movement there. 
That is really, really interesting. Now your parents, how have they handled your alcoholism? It doesn't exist. Um, and really still, yeah, my brother was a, an extremely low functioning, um, extremely low functioning alcoholic and he didn't have a problem to them. There was no problem. Yeah. It was like, you know, getting a DUI, losing custody of your kids. Like, yeah, no, that's not, it's not a problem. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and so when I would, um, when I was younger and my brother's much older and I would say, I think, I think Rob has, sorry, Rob, (laughs) he has a drinking problem. Sorry, guy. Um, I think he has a drinking problem. Um, it, they, they would just say, well, well, you have a drinking problem. And I was like, well, that's not, I mean, come on, well, you drink, you drink. And it's like, but I'm saying like, this guy's falling downstairs. Like this guy's like not able to get to the car. Like, let's, let's, you know, let's do something. And it was oh, like, it's not I was, a problem because they've seen other people do it. Everybody does it. Yes. And they saw it like I was being um, like jealous. I was putting him down, right? My brother, like older brother in an Indian family is typically, you know, revered. And so I was just trying to like bring him down a couple notches and that was not it at all. You know, he had kids. And so I was worried and I would see him do these things that were just like so scary and so dangerous. And he was like, you know, one, like literally like a fra- a hair away from more severe consequences. So, um, yeah, no, there was no such thing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy to me. And like, I, I, I understand it to a point. I just thought like maybe after you sobered up and started doing all these amazing things, your parents would be like, Oh yeah, no, I get what you're talking about, but we don't even talk about it. We just kind of lift up the the rug and put it under there. Wow. So how does that affect your, does that affect your relationship with them? Or have you just kind of gone, well, okay, mom and dad just really aren't on board. And I mean, how does it affect that relationship? Yeah. I mean, given that it's, it is like a big part of my identity, um, like recovery and like sobriety, like they will never really know me. Um, and they will never really understand the reasoning for like, yeah, reasons I have to have boundaries and like, they will never fully understand that. And so, yeah, there's always going to be distance in a relationship when it's like that. Um, I think a lot of people have distance, like when their parents are immigrants, there's like a a cultural divide anyways, when you're born in one country. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, they'll never really, they'll never understand what I do for work. They'll never understand. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, even even like recent, not recent, like six months ago, my dad was like, well, aren't you going to go back to work as an orthodontist? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I'm going to help people that are trying to get sober. And it's like, really? You went to school for so long to be an orthodontist. Why don't you go back? And I was like, no, no, it's not in my, it's not my passion. And those, those things, those words just don't exist, right? Like passion about your work. No, not a thing. You do it to live. It's supposed to be hard. You do it to live. You do the best thing you can for your family. Wow. Not that, for yourself. So that in and of itself, culturally growing up, it didn't really even, didn't even really matter outside of your anxiety. Like almost culturally, you were in a lot of, pre- under a lot of pressure because of your culture, period. Like having those Indian parents and like you said, the immigration 
and the born here, there's some cultural divides. So you're growing up in a country where there's all these, these freedoms and opportunities and things and your parents yeah. are like, nope, you need to do it this way, that way. This yeah. is the only way that it works. And so here you are, this child, and you're like, fuck, <laughs> like, I know wow. what you're telling me, but look here. That's it's, yeah, the options were um a doctor, a dentist, or a pharmacist. Those were the only three acceptable professions when I was oh, growing up. Oh, and yeah. so I just <laughs> I just picked, picked the one in the middle. And it was like, how come Julie over there gets to go to school for journalism? <laughs> right? Like, it was just very like, what's going, it's, it's confusing. But you also think like, and, and they don't fail to remind you, like they made a huge sacrifice, right? And the, the reason for the sacrifice was for you to have a better life. And being a doctor, dentist, or pharmacist will give you, will guarantee you that better life. Wow. I could not imagine in the face of all this, really, if you look back, granted my sobriety is, and everybody's sobriety, everybody's alcoholism is tough, but to be under that kind of pressure period from a small age and be able to come through it and out of it, that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think it's that unusual. I don't think I'm special. I think that people do it and do it better. I think there are a lot of Indian kids that didn't drink their way through it. Right. And just like did it and did it well. And like, you know, manned up and all that. But I think, yeah, I think I was just a sensitive person, like a more sensitive, but more kind of like reflective person. And so things hit me harder. I took things more. Right. Yeah. You're an empath. You feel things, you understand things. And that's yeah. why you're yeah. so good at what you do now. Like, it's why you're so good at connecting with people. So I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed getting to know Sonia. And I am so excited to learn a little bit more about why she wanted to create Everbloom. What led her to wanting to create this smaller community and I think that what she has going on is something that truly pays homage to the original founders of AA. And I'm not saying that um, her 12-stepping is in there or her faith part is in there, but what's in there is a true sense of anonymity. And it's something that is built on being able to help people at all times across the world business professionals, people who don't want to go to AA meetings to be seen. There are so many components of her meetings and her coaching that is so one-on-one -on -one and personal. It really is quite the amazing program that she has. So tune in next week to find out about how, how she came up with this outstanding idea and what it's all about. If you want to check it out, great. If you want to just listen and learn, that's awesome too. But please tune in next week as we finish our conversation with Sonia and you guys have an awesome weekend. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of a Sober Girls podcast. I hope that you heard something that resonated with you and that you can take with you for the next week until we meet again. You can find me on Instagram at a Sober Girls pod. You can also follow me and friends at Sober City Movement on Instagram as well. If you live in the Richmond area, 
follow me at Sober in Richmond, where we we plan local sober meetups. Or if you're just traveling and looking for a friend in the area, there's one of us in almost every city across the continent. Struggling and need help? Just remember that you are not alone. You can reach out to me and any of my friends on Instagram, send us a message. Or if you are in immediate need of help, please search out your sponsor, the closest sober friend, or go online to aa.org to find a meeting that you can attend. There are also Zoom meetings, which you can find on aa.org as well. Have a safe week, and until next time, fam, be well.